This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Come Into the Drawing Room, Doris by Edna O'Brien, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 1962. Although she was 17, this was her first party. The invitation had come only that morning from Mrs. Rogers of the Commercial Hotel. The postman brought word that Mrs. Rogers wanted her down that evening without fail. The story was chosen by Rachel Kushner, who's the author of three novels, and most recently the essay collection The Hard Crowd, which was published last year. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Deborah. Welcome. Thank you. Um, You were very keen to read a story by Edna O'Brien on the podcast. Why is that? Well, I started looking back at her history with the magazine, and... Edna O'Brien has published 39 stories in The New Yorker, if the index I found online that is not officially sanctioned by The New Yorker (laughs) is correct. Um, And that is just, it's a lot of stories, and there's a lot of range there. And I had first come to them through her collected works, The Love Object, which was published in 2013. And I thought, oh, I'll introduce myself, not having read all of Ms. O'Brien's stories previously, I'll introduce myself to them with a collection. And then I started reading from the New Yorker archive, and I realized that she had made some really interesting changes Mm -hmm. between publishing them in the New Yorker and republishing them in her collection. And something about that made the whole undertaking of a study of her work really appealing, just the seriousness of the project and thinking about how writers make decisions over time and how their relationship to their own work and even sentence by sentence might change. For instance, this story, it's the first story that opens the collection, and it's her first story that was in The New Yorker, um, was called in the collection, not Come Into the Drawing Room, Doris, but Irish Revel. As you said, this was the first story that Edna O'Brien published in the magazine. She was, I think, 31 at the time, and it was not long. It was two years after her first novel had come out. Do you think it has all the hallmarks of the writer she became? Yes, very much so, I would say. I mean, one of the things I really like about Edna O'Brien's sensibility is her ability to recapture innocence without sentimentalizing what happens to people once the scales fall from their eyes. She goes through those paces, somehow treating her character with utmost precision and sympathy for what it means to have a dream and then to have that dream be shattered. And I think that those are the hallmarks of a writer who's really in control of her craft. Um, I noticed the story was published one month after she left her husband, September of 1962, as she records in her wonderful memoir, Country Girl. And her marriage was characterized by what to me seems like incredible brutality, just emotional brutality. And um, there's this feeling that to be a girl in Ireland in the 1950s is to live in a world where men archbishops, priests, fathers, and brothers make all of a girl's decisions for her. And, I mean, all of that is at the center of what happened to Edna O'Brien early in her career, which is she put women's sexuality on the page, 
And those pages were banned in Ireland. You know, she was repeatedly banned for writing frankly about women and desire. Right. And I've often seen um, the ban on Edna O'Brien's books and the reaction to her fiction and her personhood, frankly, um, as people being afraid of the subject of women's pleasure. But I think it's so much more than just about women's pleasure. It's women's right to any sort of autonomy. And in fact, you know, to come back to the story, it's women's right to have their own fancies and dreams the way the men at an Irish revel might have fancies and dreams. Exactly. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Rachel Kushner reading Come Into the Drawing Room, Doris, by Edna O'Brien. Come into the drawing room, Doris. Mary hoped that the rotted front tire of her bicycle would not burst. As it was, the tube had a slow puncture, and twice she had to stop and use the pump, a tiring business because the pump had no connection and had to be jammed on over the corner of a handkerchief. For as long as she could remember, she had been pumping bicycles, carting peat for the fire, cleaning outhouses, doing a man's job. Her father and her two older brothers worked for the forestry, so she and her mother had to do all the odd jobs. There were young children to care for, and fowl and pigs and churning. Theirs was a mountainy farm in Ireland, and life was hard. But this cold evening, in early autumn, she was free. She rode along the mountain road, between the bare thorn hedges, thinking pleasantly about the party. Although she was seventeen, this was her first party— the invitation had come only that morning from Mrs. Rogers of the commercial hotel. The postman brought word that Mrs. Rogers wanted her down that evening without fail. She was to stay overnight. At first, her mother did not wish Mary to go. There was too much to be done, gruel to be made, and one of the twins had earache and was likely to cry in the night. Mary slept with the year-old twins, and sometimes she was afraid that she might lie on them or smother them. The bed was so small. She begged her mother to be let go. What use would it be, her mother said. To her mother, all outings were useless, unsettling. They gave you a taste of something you couldn't have. But finally, her mother gave in, mainly because Mrs. Rogers, as owner of the commercial hotel, was an important woman, and also she had a brother who was a bishop in Australia. You can go so long as you're back in time for the milking in the morning, and mind you don't lose your head and do anything flighty, her mother warned. Then Mary plaited her dark hair, and later, when she combed it, it fell in crinkly waves over her shoulders. She was allowed to wear the black lace dress that had come from America years ago and belonged to no one in particular. Her mother gave her a bottle of cream to take to Mrs. Rogers, sprinkled her with holy water, conveyed her to the top of the lane, and warned her again never to touch alcohol. Mary felt happy as she rode along slowly, avoiding the loose stones and potholes, which were thinly iced over. The frosted fields glistened white in the weak sunshine. If it went on like this for days, the cattle would have to be brought into the shed and given hay. The road turned and curled and rose. She turned and curled with it, climbing little hills and descending again toward the next hill. At the descent of the big hill, she got off the bicycle. The brakes were unreliable and looked back out of habit at her own house. It was the only house there on the side of the mountain, small and whitewashed, with a few scraggy trees around it and a patch at the back that you could hardly call a garden. There was a rhubarb bed and shrubs over which they emptied tea leaves, 
and a stretch of grass where they kept a chicken run in the summer, moving it from one patch to the next every other day. She looked away, walked on, and settled down to think of John Rowland. Two years before, he had come to their district riding a motorcycle, scattering dust on her hair and the milk cloths she had put out to dry, and stopped to ask the way. He was staying in the commercial hotel down in the village and had come up to see the mountain lake, which was famous for its colors. It changed color with the changing sky. It would be blue and ice green and vicious black, all within an hour. At sunset, it was often a strange burgundy, not like a lake at all, but like wine. "'Tis down there, she said to the stranger, pointing to the lake below with a small island in the middle of it. He had taken a wrong turning. What a remarkable landscape, he said, looking round. Hills and narrow cornfields descended steeply toward the water. The color of the hills was sharpened by the fine, hard blue of limestone boulders, and the small cornfields were bleaching already in midsummer. The ditches were ragged, the garden overgrown with foxglove and smells and thistles, the milk sour five hours after it had been put in the tanker. She had no interest in views herself, so she just looked up at the high blue sky and saw that a hawk had halted in the air above them. It was like a pause in her life, the hawk above them, perfectly still. But just then, her mother came out to see who the stranger was. He took off his helmet and said hello to her mother very courteously. He introduced himself as John Rowland, an English painter who lived in Italy. Mary did not remember exactly how it happened, but after a while... He walked into the kitchen with them and sat down to tea. Two years since, but she had never given up hoping that she would see him again, perhaps this evening. The postman had said that someone special in the commercial hotel expected her. She felt happiness such as she had not known for years, so that she spoke to her bicycle, and it seemed to her that her happiness somehow glowed in the pearliness of the cold evening sky, in the white fields turning blue in the dusk, in the cottage windows she passed. Her mother and father were rich and happy. The twin had no earache, and the kitchen fire did not smoke. Now and then she smiled at the thought of how she would appear to him, taller and with breasts now, and a black lace dress, the sleeves of which roughed out into wide frills as they fell over her wrists. She forgot about the rotted tire, mounted, and cycled quickly down the hill. The five streetlights were on when she pedaled into the village. There had been a cattle fair that day, and the main street was covered with dung. The townspeople had their windows protected against the animals with wooden half-shutters and makeshift arrangements of planks and barrels. Some were out scrubbing their own pieces of footpath with bucket and brush. There were cattle wandering around mooing, the way cattle do when they're in a strange street, and drunken farmers with sticks trying to identify their own. When she came to the shop window of the commercial hotel, Mary heard loud conversation and men singing. The window was frosted glass, so she could not identify any of them. She could just see their heads moving about inside. It was a shabby hotel. The yellow-washed walls needed a coat of paint. They hadn't been done since the time de Valera came to the village, during the election campaign five years before. De Valera had gone upstairs and sat in the parlor and written his name with a penny pen in an autograph book and sympathized with Mrs. Rogers on the recent death of her husband. 
Mary thought of resting her bicycle against the porter barrels under the shop window and then climbing the three stone steps that led to the hall door. But suddenly the latch of the shop door clicked, and in terror she ran up the alley by the side of the shop, afraid it might be someone who knew her father and would say he had seen her going in through the public bar. She wheeled her bicycle into a shed and approached the back door. It was open, but being a mountainy girl, she did not enter without knocking. Two town girls rushed to answer her knock. One was Doris O'Bairn, the daughter of the harness maker. She was the only Doris in the whole village, and she was distinguished for that, as well as for the fact that one of her eyes was blue and the other a dark brown. She was learning shorthand and typing at the local technical school, and she meant to be a secretary to some famous man or other in the government up in Dublin. God, I thought it was someone important, she said, when she saw Mary standing there, blushing, pretty, and with a bottle of cream in her hand. Another girl. Girls were to a penny in that neighborhood. People said that it had something to do with the lime water that so many girls were born. Girls like Mary, with pink skins, long wavy hair, and neat figures. Come in or stay out, said Ethna Duggan, the second girl. It was supposed to be a joke, but neither of them liked the look of Mary. They hated sly ones from the mountain. Mary came in. She put the cream on the dresser and took off her coat. The girls nudged each other when they saw her dress. In the kitchen was a distinct smell of cow dung and fried onions. "'Where's Mrs. Rogers?' Mary asked. "'Serving,' Doris said in a saucy voice, as if any fool ought to know. Two old men sat at the table eating. "'I can't chew. I have no teeth,' one of the men said to Doris. "'Tis like leather,' he said, holding the plate of burned steak toward her. He had pale blue eyes, and he blinked childishly. Was it true, Mary wondered, that eyes got paler with age, like bluebells in a jar? "'Tis good for you, chewin' is, Ethna Duggan said, teasing him. She and Doris began to giggle. Ethna Duggan laughed so much that she had to put a dishcloth over her mouth. Mary went through to the shop. Mrs. Rogers came from the counter for a moment to speak to her. "'Mary, I'm glad you came. That pair in there are no use at all, always giggling.' Now, first thing we have to do is get the parlor upstairs straightened out. Everything has to come out of it except the piano. We're going to have dancing and everything tonight. Mary realized that she was being given work to do, and she blushed with shock and disappointment. Pitch everything into the back bedroom, the whole shooting lot, Mrs. Rogers was saying, as Mary thought of her good lace dress, of how her mother wouldn't even let her wear it to mass on Sundays. And we have to stuff a goose, too, and get it started, Mrs. Rogers said and went on to explain that the party was in honor of Mr. Brogan, the local customs and excise officer, who was retiring because his wife had won some money in the sweep. Two thousand pounds. His wife lived thirty miles away at the far side of Limerick, and he lodged in the commercial hotel from Monday to Friday, going home for the weekends. "'There's someone here expecting me,' Mary said, trembling with the pleasure of being about to hear his name pronounced." She wondered which room was his and if he was likely to be in at that moment. Already, in imagination, she had climbed the rickety stairs and knocked on the door and heard him move around inside. Expecting you, Mrs. Rogers said and looked puzzled. Oh, that lad from the slate quarry was inquiring about you. He said he saw you at a dance once. He's as odd as two left shoes. What, lad, Mary said, and she felt the joy leaking out of her heart. Oh, what's his name, Mrs. Rogers said, 
and then to the men with empty glasses who were shouting for her, Oh, all right, I'm coming. Upstairs, Doris and Ethna helped Mary move the heavy pieces of furniture. They dragged the sideboard across the landing, and one of the casters tore the linoleum. She was expiring because she had the heaviest end, the other two being at the same side. She felt that it was on purpose. They ate sweets without offering her one, and she caught them making faces at her dress. The dress worried her, too, in case anything should happen to it. If one of the lace threads caught in a splinter of wood or on a porter barrel, she would have no business going home in the morning. They carried out a varnished bamboo whatnot, a small table, knick-knacks, and a chamber pot with no handle, which held some withered hydrangeas. They looked like rusted dish mops and smelled awful. How much is that doggy in the window, the one with the waggly tail? Doris O'Byrne sang to a white china doll and swore that there wasn't ten pounds worth of furniture in the whole shebang. Are you leaving your curlers in, Dot, till it starts? Ethna Duggan asked. Oh, deaf, Doris O'Byrne said. She wore an assortment of curlers, white pipe cleaners, metal clips, and pink plastic rollers. Ethna had just taken hers out, and her hair, dyed blonde, stood out, all frizzed and alarmed. She reminded Mary of a molting hen about to attempt flight. She was, God bless her, an unfortunate girl with a squint, jumbled teeth, and crooked lips, like something put together hurriedly, and her skin was bad. How surprising with all that rain and fresh air that she hadn't a nicer complexion, but that was the luck of the draw. Take these, Doris O'Byrne said, handing Mary bunches of yellowed bills stuck on skewers. Do this, do that. They ordered her around like a maid. She dusted the piano, top and sides, and the yellow and black keys, then the baseboards and the wainscoting. The dust, thick on everything, had settled into a hard film because of the damp in the room. A party. She'd have been as well off at home. At least it was clean dirt, attending to calves and pigs and the like. Doris and Ethna amused themselves, hitting notes on the piano at random and wandering from one mirror to the next. There were two mirrors in the parlor, and on one side of the folding fire screen was a blotchy mirror, too. The other two sides were of water lilies painted on black cloth, but, like everything else in the room, the screen was old and dismal. What's that? Doris and Ethna asked each other as they heard a hullabaloo downstairs. They rushed out and Mary followed. Over the banisters, they saw that a young bullock had got in the hall door and was slithering over the tiled floor, trying to find his way out again. Don't excite him, don't excite him, I tell you, the toothless old man was saying to the young boys trying to drive the black bullock out, when Mrs. Rogers came into the hall and dropped a glass of porter. The beast backed out the way he'd come, shaking his head from side to side. Ethna and Doris clasped each other in laughter, and then Doris drew back so that none of the boys would see her in her curling pins and call her names. Mary had gone back to the room, downcast. Wearily, she pushed the chairs against the wall and swept the linoleum floor where they were to dance. She's bawling in there, Ethna Duggan told her friend Doris. They had locked themselves into the bathroom with a bottle of cider. God, she's a right-looking idiot in the dress, Doris said, and the length of it. It's her mother's, Ethna said. She had admired the dress before that, when Doris was out of the room and had asked Mary where she bought it. What's she crying about? Doris wondered aloud. She thought some lad would be here. Do you remember that lad stayed here the summer before last and had a motorcycle? He was a Jew, Doris said, as if that explained everything. 
God, she'd shake him in that dress. He'd think she was a scarecrow. She tightened a curling pin that had come loose and said, Her hair isn't natural either. You can see it's curled. I hate that kind of black hair. It's like a gypsy's, Ethna said, drinking the last of the cider. They hid the bottle under the scarred bath. Have a cut, you, Dora said. Take the smell of your breath. She hawed on the bathroom mirror and wondered if she could get off with that fellow O'Toole from the slate quarry who was coming to the party. In the front room, Mary polished glasses. Once more, the tears ran down her cheeks so that she did not put on the light. She foresaw how the party would be. They would all stand around and consume the goose, which was now simmering in the turf range. The men would be drunk, the girls silly. Having eaten, they would dance and sing and tell ghost stories, and in the morning she would have to get up early and be home in time to milk. She moved toward the dark pane of window with a glass in her hand and looked out at the dirtied streets, remembering how once she had danced with John on the upper road to no music at all, just their hearts beating and the sound of happiness. He had come into their house for tea that summer's day, and on her father's suggestion, he lodged with them for four days, helping with the hay and oiling farm machinery. Mary made his bed in the daytime and carried up a ewer of water from the rain barrel every evening so that he could wash himself. She washed the check shirt he wore, and that day his bare back got red from too much sun. She put milk on it to soothe it. It was his last day with them. After supper, he proposed giving each of the grown-up children a ride on the motorcycle. Her turn came last. She felt that he had planned it that way, but it may have been that her brothers were more persistent about being first. She would never forget that ride. She had warmed from head to foot in wonder and joy. He praised her as a good balancer, and at odd moments he took one hand off the handlebar and gave her clasped hands a comforting pat. The sun went down and the gorse flowers blazed yellow. They did not talk for miles, and she had his stomach enfolded in the delicate and frantic grasp of a girl in love and no matter how far they rode, they seemed always to be riding into a golden haze. He saw the lake at its most glorious. They got off at the bridge five miles away and sat on the limestone wall, which was cushioned by moss and lichen. She took a tick out of his neck and kissed the spot where the tick had drawn one pinprick of blood. It was then they had danced to the sound of larks and running water. The hay cut in the fields was lying green and ungathered, and the air was pure with the smell of it. They danced. Sweet Mary, he said, looking earnestly into her eyes. Her eyes were a greenish brown. He confessed that he could not love her because he already loved his wife and children. And anyhow, he said, you are too young and innocent. Next day, as he was leaving, he asked if he might send her something in the post, and it came eleven days later, a black and white drawing of her, very like her, except that the girl in the drawing was prettier. A fat lot of good that is, her mother who had been expecting a gold bracelet or a brooch, said, That wouldn't take you far. They hung it on a nail in the kitchen for a while, and then one day it fell down and someone, probably her mother, used it to sweep dust onto. Ever since it was used for that purpose, Mary had wanted to treasure it, to put it away in a trunk forever, but she was ashamed to. They were hard people, and it was only when someone died that they could give in to sentiment or crying. Sweet Mary, he had said, he never wrote. Two summers passed, devil's pokers flowered for two seasons, thistle-seed blew white in the harsh mountain wind, and the trees in the forestry plantation were a foot higher. She had a feeling that he would come back sometime, and a gnawing fear that he might not. 
Oh, it ain't going to rain no more, no more. It ain't going to rain no more. How in hell can the old folks tell it ain't going to rain no more? So sang Brogan, whose party it was, in the upstairs room of the commercial hotel. Unbuttoning his brown waistcoat, he sat back and said what a fine spread it was. They had carried the goose up on a platter and laid it in the center of the mahogany table with potato stuffing swelling out of it. There were sausages also, and polished glasses standing rim downward and plates and forks for everyone. A fork supper was how Mrs. Rogers described it. She had read about it in the paper. It was all the rage now in posh houses in Dublin, this fork supper where you stood up for your food and ate with a fork only. Mary had brought knives in case anyone got into difficulties. "'Tis America at home,' Hickey said, putting turf on the smoking fire. The pub door was bolted downstairs, the shutters across as the eight guests upstairs watched Mrs. Rogers carve the goose and then tear the loose pieces away with her fingers. Every so often she wiped her fingers on a tea towel. "'Here you are, Mary. Give this to Mr. Brogan, as he's the guest of honor. Mr. Brogan got a lot of breast and some crispy skin as well. "'Don't forget the sausages, Mary,' Mrs. Rogers said." Mary had to do everything. Pass the food around, serve the stuffing, ask people whether they wanted paper plates or china ones. Mrs. Rogers had brought paper plates, thinking they were very sophisticated. I could eat a young child, Hickey said. Mary was surprised that people in towns were so coarse and outspoken, and when he squeezed her finger, she did not smile at all. She wished that she were at home now. She knew what they were doing at home, the school-going boys at their lessons, her mother baking a cake of wholemeal bread because there was never enough time during the day to bake, her father rolling cigarettes and talking to himself. John had taught him how to roll cigarettes, and every night since he rolled four and smoked four. He was a good man, her father, but dour and thrifty. In another hour he'd be saying the rosary in her house and going up to bed. The rhythm of their lives never changed. The fresh bread was always cool by morning." Ten o'clock, Doris said, listening to the chimes of the landing clock. The party had begun late. The men were late getting back from the dogs in Limerick. They'd killed a pig on the way in their anxiety to get back quickly. The pig had been wandering on the road, and the car coming round the corner ran over it instantly. Never heard such a roarin' in all me born days, Hickey said, reaching for a wing of goose, the choicest bit. We should have brought it with us, Michael O'Toole said. O'Toole worked in the slate quarry and knew nothing about pigs or farming. He was tall and thin and bony. He had bright blue eyes and a face like a greyhound's. His hair was so blonde that it looked dyed, but in fact it was bleached by the weather. No one offered him any food. A nice way to treat a man, he said. God bless us, Mary, didn't she give Mr. O'Toole anything to eat yet? Mrs. Rogers said as she thumped Mary on the back to hurry her up. Mary brought him a large helping on a paper plate, and he thanked her and said that they would dance later. To him, she looked far prettier than those good-for-nothing towns girls. She was tall and thin, like himself, and she had long black hair that some people might think streelish, but not him. He liked long hair and decent, simple-minded girls. Maybe later on, he'd get her to go into one of the other rooms and they could cuddle down, nice and snug. She had funny eyes, too, green at first sight, but brown when you looked into them, like a bloody bog hole. Have a wish, he said to her, as he held the wishbone up. She wished that she would go to America on an airplane, and second thought she wished that she would win a lot of money and could buy her mother and father a big house down near the main road. Is that your brother, the bishop? Ethna Duggan, who knew well that it was, asked Mrs. Rogers concerning the potato-faced cleric over the fireplace. 
Unknown to herself, Mary had traced the letter J on the dust of the picture glass earlier on, and now they all seemed to be looking at it, knowing how it came to be there. That's him, poor Charlie, Mrs. Rogers said proudly, and was about to elaborate, but Brogan began to sing. Let the man sing, can't you, O'Toole said, hushing two of the girls, who were having a joke about the armchair they shared. The springs were hanging down underneath, and the girls said that at any minute the whole thing would collapse. Mary shivered in her lace dress, and another thing, the sleeves were dipping into everything. The room smelled cold and damp, even though Hickey had got up a good fire. There hadn't been a fire in that room since the day de Valera signed the autograph book. When Brogan finished, O'Toole asked if any of the ladies would care to sing. There were five ladies in all, Mrs. Rogers, Mary, Doris, Ethna, and Crystal O'Meara, the local hairdresser, who had a new red rinse in her hair and who insisted that the food was a little heavy for her. The goose was greasy and undercooked. She did not like its raw pink color. She liked dainty things, little bits of cold chicken with beetroot and sweet pickles. Her real name was Carmel, but when she started up as a hairdresser, she changed to Crystal and dyed her brown hair red. I bet you can sing, O'Toole said to Mary. Where she comes from, they can hardly talk, Doris said. Mary felt the blood rushing to her cheeks. She would not tell them, but her father's name had been in the paper once because he had seen a pine marten in the forestry plantation, and they ate with knife and fork at home and had a plastic cloth on the kitchen table and a tin of coffee in case strangers called. She would not tell them anything. She just hung her head and said that she couldn't sing. O'Toole put Far Away in Australia on the horn gramophone in honor of the bishop over the fireplace who presided in Sydney. The sound issued forth with rasps and scratchings, and Brogan said he could do better than that himself. Christ, lads, we forgot the soup, Mrs. Rogers said suddenly as she threw down her fork and went toward the door. There had been soup scheduled to begin with. I'll help you, Doris O'Byrne said, stirring herself for the first time that night and they both went down to get the pot of giblet soup that had been simmering all day. Now we need two pounds from each of the gents, said O'Toole, taking the opportunity while Mrs. Rogers was away to mention the delicate matter of money. The men had agreed to pay two pounds each to cover the cost of the drink. The ladies did not have to pay anything, but were invited to lend a pleasant and decorative atmosphere to the party, and of course to help with the food. O'Toole went round with his cap held out, and Brogan said that as it was his party, he ought to give a fiver, but I suppose you wouldn't hear that, Brogan said, and handed up two-pound notes. Hickey paid up two, and O'Toole himself, and Long John Salmon, who was the most silent guest of all. O'Toole gave the money to Mrs. Rogers when she returned and told her to clock it up against the damages. Sure, that's too kind altogether, she said, as she put it behind the stuffed owl on the mantelpiece, under the bishop's watchful eye. She served the soup in cups, and Mary was asked to pass them around. The grease floated like specks of molten gold on the surface of each cup. See you later, alligator, Hickey said, as she gave him his. Then he asked her for a piece of bread, because she wasn't used to soup without bread. Tell us, Brogan, said Hickey, what'll you do now that you're a rich man? Oh, go on, tell us, said Doris O'Byrne. Well, Brogan said, thinking for a minute, we're going to make some changes at home. None of them had ever visited Brogan's home, because it was situated in Adair, thirty miles away. None of them had ever seen his wife either, who, it seems, lived there and kept bees. What sort of changes, someone said. We're going to do up the drawing room, and we're going to have some flower beds, Brogan told them. And what else, Crystal asked, thinking of all the lovely clothes she could buy with that money, lovely clothes and jewelry. 
Well, said Brogan, thinking again, we might even go to Lord's. I'm not sure yet. It all depends. I'd give my two eyes to go to Lord's, Mrs. Rogers said. And then you'd get him back when you arrived there, Hickey said, but no one paid any attention to him. O'Toole poured out four half-tumblers of whiskey and then stood back to examine the glasses to see that each one had the same amount. There was always great anxiety among the men about being fair with drink. Then O'Toole stood bottles of stout in little groups of six and told each man which group was his. The ladies had gin and orange. Orange for me, Mary said, but O'Toole told her not to be such a fool, and when her back was turned, he put some gin in her orange. They drank a toast to Brogan. To Lord's, Mrs. Rogers said. To Brogan, O'Toole said. To myself, Hickey said. Mud in your eyes, said Doris O'Byrne, who was already unsteady from tippling cider. Well, we're not sure about Lord's, Brogan said, but we'll get the drawing room done up anyhow, and the flower beds put in. We've a drawing room here, Mrs. Rogers said, and no one ever sets foot in it. Come into the drawing room, Doris, said O'Toole to Mary, who was serving jelly from a big enamel basin. They'd had no nice bowl to put it in. It was red jelly with whipped egg white in it, but it hadn't set properly. She served it in saucers and thought what a rough-and-ready party it was. There wasn't a proper cloth on the table either, just a plastic one, and no napkins and that big basin with the jelly in it. Maybe people washed in that basin downstairs. "'Well, someone tell us a bloomin' joke,' said Hickey, who was getting fed up with talk about drawing rooms and flower beds. "'I'll tell you a joke,' said Long John Salmon, who had been silent up until then. "'Good,' said Brogan, as he sipped from his whiskey glass and his stout glass alternately. "'Is it a funny joke?' Hickey asked of Long John Salmon. "'It's about my brother,' said Long John Salmon, "'my brother Patrick.' "'Oh, no, don't tell us that old rambling thing again,' Hickey said at once, "'and O'Toole nodded his own protest. "'Oh, let him tell it,' said Mrs. Rogers, "'who'd never heard the story anyhow. "'Long John Salmon began. "'I had this brother Patrick, and he died. "'The heart wasn't too good.' "'Holy Christ, not this again,' said Brogan, "'recollecting which story it was.' But Long John Salmon went on, undeterred by the sighs from the three men. One day I was standing in the shed about a month after he was buried, and I saw him coming out of the wall, walking across the yard. Oh, what would you do if you saw a thing like that, Doris said to Ethna. Let him tell it, Mrs. Rogers said. Go on, Long John. Well, it was walking toward me, and I said to myself, what do I do now? It was raining heavy, and I said to my brother Patrick, stand in out of the wet, or you'll get drenched. And then, said one of the girls anxiously. He vanished, said Long John Salmon. Ah, oh, God, let us have a bit of music, said Hickey, who had heard that story nine or ten times. They put a record on, and O'Toole asked Mary to dance. He did a lot of fancy steps and capering, and now and then he let out a mad yippee. Brogan and Mrs. Rogers were dancing, too, and Crystal said that she'd dance if anyone asked her. Come on, knees up, Mother Brown, O'Toole said to Mary as he jumped around the room, kicking the legs of chairs as he moved. She felt funny. Her head was swaying round and round, and in the pit of her stomach there was a nice ticklish feeling that made her want to lie back and stretch her legs, a new feeling that frightened her. Perhaps he had put gin in her orange when she wasn't looking. Come into the drawing room, Doris, he said, dancing her right out of the room and into the cold passage, where he kissed her clumsily. Inside, Crystal O'Meara had begun to cry. That was how drink affected her. Either she cried or talked in a foreign accent and said, Why am I talking in a foreign accent? This time she cried. Hickey, there is no joy in life, she said as she sat at the table with her head laid in her arms and her blouse slipping out of her skirt band. 
She had taken off her left shoe because it pinched. What joy, said Hickey, who had all the drink he needed and a pound note he had slipped from behind the owl when no one was looking. Doris and Ethna sat on the other side of Long John's salmon, asking if they could go out to his place next year when the sugar plums were ripe. Long John's salmon lived by himself way up the country, and he had a big orchard. He was odd and silent. He took a swim every day, winter and summer, in the river at the back of his stone house. Two old merry people, Brogan said, as he put his arm around Mrs. Rogers and urged her to sit down because he was out of breath from dancing. He said he'd go away with happy memories of them all, and sitting down, he drew her onto his lap. She was a heavy woman with straggledy brown hair that had once been a bright nut color. There is no joy in life, Crystal sobbed, as the gramophone made crackling noises and Mary ran in from the landing, away from O'Toole. I mean business, O'Toole said and winked. O'Toole was the first to get quarrelsome. Now, ladies, now, gentlemen, a little laughing sketch. Are we ready, he asked. Fire ahead, Hickey told him. Well, there were these three lads, Patty the Irishman, Patty the Englishman, and Patty the Scotsman, and they were badly in need of... Now, no smut, Mrs. Rogers snapped, before he had uttered a wrong word at all. What smut, said O'Toole, getting offended. Smut? Think of the girls, Mrs. Rogers said. Girls, O'Toole sneered, as he picked up the bottle of cream, which they'd forgotten to use with the jelly, and poured it into the carcass of the goose. Christ's sake, man, Hickey said, taking the bottle of cream out of O'Toole's hand. Mrs. Rogers said that it was high time everyone went to bed, as the party seemed to be over. The guests would spend the night in the commercial. It was too late for them to go home, and also Mrs. Rogers did not want them to be observed staggering out of the house at that hour. The police watched her like hawks, she said, and she did not want any trouble, until Christmas was over, at least. The sleeping arrangements had been decided earlier on. There were three bedrooms. Brogan would have the room he always slept in. The other three men were to pitch in together in the second big bedroom, and the girls were to share the back room with Mrs. Rogers herself. Come on, everyone, blanket street, Mrs. Rogers said, as she put a guard in front of the dying fire and took the money from behind the owl. Sugar you, O'Toole said, pouring stout now into the carcass of the goose. Long John Salmon wished that he had never come. He thought of daylight and his swim in the mountain river at the back of his graystone house. Ablution, he said aloud, taking pleasure in the word and in the thought of cold water touching him. He could do without people. People were dirty. He remembered catkins on a tree outside his window, catkins in February, as white as snow. Crystal, stir yourself, Hickey said, as he put on her shoe and patted the calves of her legs. Brogan kissed the four girls and saw them across the landing to the bedroom. Mary was glad to escape without O'Toole noticing. He was very obstreperous and Hickey was trying to control him. In the bedroom, she sighed. She had forgotten all about the furniture being pitched in there. Wearily, they began to unload the things. The room was so crammed that they could hardly move in it. Mary suddenly felt alert and frightened because O'Toole could be heard yelling and singing out on the landing. There had been gin in her orangeade, she knew now, because she breathed closely onto the palm of her hand and smelled her own breath. She had broken her confirmation pledge, broken her promise. It would bring her bad luck always. Mrs. Rogers came in and said that five of them would be too crushed in the bed so that she herself would sleep on the sofa in the parlor for one night. Two of you at the top and two at the bottom, she said, and she warned them not to break any of the ornaments and not to stay talking all night. Night and God bless, she said, as she shut the door behind her. 
Nice thing, said Doris O'Byrne, bunging us all in here. I wonder where she's off to. Will you loan me curlers, Crystal asked. To Crystal, hair was the most important thing on earth. She would never get married because you couldn't wear curlers in bed. Ethna Duggan said she wouldn't put curlers in now if she got five million for doing it. She was jaded. She threw herself down on the quilt and spread her arms out. She was a noisy, sweaty girl, but Mary liked her better than the other two. Ah, me old honey bunch, O'Toole said, pushing the door in. The girls exclaimed and asked him to go out at once as they were preparing for bed. Come into the drawing room, Doris, he said to Mary, and curled his forefinger at her. He was drunk and couldn't focus her properly, but he knew she was standing there somewhere. Go to bed, you're drunk, Doris O'Byrne said, and he stood up very upright for an instance and asked her to speak for herself. Go to bed, Michael, you're tired, Mary said to him. She tried to sound calm because he looked so wild. Come into the drawing room, I tell ya, he said as he caught her wrist and dragged her toward the door. She let out a cry, and Ethna Duggan said she'd brain him if he didn't leave the girl alone. Give me that flower pot, Doris, Ethna Duggan called, and then Mary began to cry for fear there might be a scene. She hated scenes. Once she had heard her father and a neighbor having a row about boundary rights, and she'd never forgotten it. They had both been a bit drunk after a fair. Are you cracked or are you mad, O'Toole said, when he perceived that she was crying. I'll give you two seconds, Ethna warned, as she held the flower pot high, ready to throw it at O'Toole's greyhound face. You're a nice bunch of hard-faced old crows, he said. Wouldn't give a man a squeeze. He went out, cursing each one of them. They shut the door very quickly and dragged the sideboard in front of the door so that he could not break in when they were asleep. They got into bed in their underwear, Mary and Ethna at one end with Crystal's feet between their faces. You have lovely hair, Ethna whispered to Mary. It was the nicest thing she could think of to say. They each said their prayers and shook hands under the covers and settled down to sleep. Hey, Doris O'Byrne said a few seconds later. I never went to the lav. You can't go now, Ethna said. The sideboard's in front of the door. I'll die if I don't go, Doris O'Byrne said. Ah, me too, after all that orange we drank, Crystal said. Mary was shocked. At home, you never spoke of such a thing. They heard feet on the landing, and then the sound of choking and coughing, and later O'Toole cursing and swearing and hitting the wall with his fist. Mary curled down under the clothes, thankful for the company of the girls. I was at a party. Now I know what parties are like, Mary said to herself, as she tried to force herself asleep. She heard a sound as of water running, but it did not seem to be raining outside. Later, she dozed, but at daybreak, she heard the hall door bang, and she sat up in bed abruptly. She had to be home early to milk, so she got up, took her shoes and her lace dress, and let herself out by dragging the sideboard forward and opening the door slightly. There were newspapers spread on the landing floor and in the lavatory, and a heavy smell pervaded. Downstairs, Porter had flowed out of the bar and into the hall. Someone, probably O'Toole, had turned on the taps of the five porter barrels and the stone-floored bar and sunken passage outside were a lake of black porter. Mrs. Rogers would kill somebody. Mary put on her high-heeled shoes and picked her steps carefully across the room to the door. She left without even making a cup of tea. She wheeled her bicycle down the alley and into the street. The front tire was dead flat. She pumped for ten minutes, but it remained flat. 
The frost lay like a spell upon the street, upon the sleeping windows and the slate roofs of the crumbling houses. It had magically made the dunged street white and clean. She did not feel tired, but was relieved to be out and stunned by lack of sleep and the beauty of the morning. She walked briskly, sometimes looking back to see the track that her bicycle and her feet made on the white road. Mrs. Rogers wakened at eight and stumbled out in her big nightgown from Brogan's warm bed. She smelled disaster instantly and hurried downstairs to find the lake of porter in the bar and the ground hall. Then she ran to call the others. Porter all over the place. Every drop of drink in the house is on the floor. Mary, Mother of God, help me in my tribulation. Get up, get up. She rapped on their door and called the girls by name. The girls rubbed their sleepy eyes, yawned, and sat up. She's gone, Ethna said, looking at the place on the pillow where Mary's head had been. Oh, a sneaky country one, Doris said, as she got into her taffeta dress and went down to see the flood. If I have to clean that in my good clothes, I'll die, she said. But Mrs. Rogers had already brought brushes and pails and got to work. They opened the bar door and began to bail the porter into the street. Dogs came to lap it up, and Hickey, who had come down, stood and said what a crying shame it was to waste all that drink. Outside, it washed away an area of frost and revealed the dung of yesterday's fair day. O'Toole, the culprit, had fled. Long John Salmon was gone for his swim, and upstairs, in bed, Brogan snuggled down for a last-minute heat and deliberated on the joys that he would miss when he left the commercial for good. "'And where's my lady with the lace dress?' Hickey asked, recalling very little of Mary's face, but distinctly remembering the sleeves of her black dress, which dipped into every damn thing. "'Sneaked off before we were up,' Doris said. They all agreed that Mary was no bloody use and should never have been asked. "'And twas she,' said O'Toole, mad, egging him on and then disappointing him,' Doris said. And Mrs. Rogers swore that O'Toole, or Mary's father, or someone, would pay dear for the wasted drink. "'I suppose she's home by now,' Hickey said, as he rooted in his pocket for a butt. He had a new packet, but if he produced that, they'd all be puffing at his expense." Mary was half a mile from home, sitting on a ditch. If only I had a sweetheart, something to hold on to, she thought, as she cracked some ice with her high heel and pitied the poor birds who could get no food as the ground was frozen hard. Walking again, she wondered if she would ever go to another party and what she would tell her mother and her brothers about it, and if all parties were as bad. She came over the top of the hill and suddenly saw her own house, like a little white box at the end of the world, waiting to receive her. That was Rachel Kushner reading Come Into the Drawing Room, Doris, by Edna O'Brien. The story appeared in The New Yorker in October of 1962 and was included under the title Irish Revel in O'Brien's collection The Love Object and Other Stories in 1968. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, 
a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Rachel, when I talked to Edna about the story briefly, she said that in this story, like in many others she's written, landscape is part of the emotional heft. It's not about geography, but how our surroundings define our feelings. What do you think the landscape does here? Well, you know, the character Mary in the story is, as Edna O'Brien describes her, a mountainy girl, and she's versed in men's work and knows how to manage a farm, and maybe, by virtue of that, is also something of a connoisseur of the landscape. So she's describing it for us, the reader, as she rides her bicycle down into town. And her sort of primal scene with John Rowland, the guy on the motorcycle, is characterized by his ravishment of this landscape. And for her, the landscape is familiar. Therefore, his ravishment of landscape um, involves also his ravishment of her. Um, but what you just said about it not being geography and landscape reminded me that um, there's an interesting, I think, symbol in the story regarding landscape. When she rides into town, uh, there's been a cattle fair that day, and the streets are lined with dung. And this girl comes into a town lined with dung, and the kitchen even smells like dung and fried onions. But she's going in a dress so fine that she's not even allowed to wear it to mass in hopes of meeting John Rowland. But the combination of seduction and cow dung inevitably brings us back to Madame Bovary and this famous chapter that Flaubert was so proud of at the agriculture fair when Rudolph seduces Emma and the combination of cattle prices and a seduction that's also an exploitation and both of them having desires that are at cross purposes with the other. I think in this story, it's just worth noting that there's a combination <laughs> of cattle and seduction and hopes and dreams of sexual love, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't really think of that. In my reading, I was thinking, this poor girl cannot get off the farm. She goes into town, finally, in her finery, and there are cows and dung everywhere. There's even one that comes into the hotel. Right. <laughs> she can't get off the farm. She's um, also told right away by Mrs. Rogers to stuff a goose. And um, if you've ever cooked a goose, you will know that it is a greasy, greasy business. And yet she's wearing this special dress. Yeah, and her sleeves are going in everything. <laughs> um, I mean, with that moment where John Roland is so ravished by the landscape and saying how remarkable it is, Mary can't even look at it. She looks at the sky. Right. She knows it so well she can't see it. She can't see the beauty in it. There's even that moment when she's riding her bicycle and she looks at the frost on the fields and she says, instead of, you know, this beautiful <laughs> scenery with glittering frost, she says, well, if this keeps going, I'm going to have to feed the cattle hay because they can't get the grass. Right. There's almost a refusal of the sensuality of the landscape on her part. At the beginning of the at story. At the beginning of the story, and then John Rowland 
kind of forces her to look at it. I mean, they go and they sit on the bridge overlooking this beautiful lake that changes colors, and suddenly she's changed by that, I suppose. Well, I think she's looking to him as a vehicle for escape. Yeah. And, you know, he's entranced by the landscape and by her, but um, for her, home is something that she needs to leave, and that's just a very natural process of individuation. I've always been interested in literature about that moment when people long to leave the comforts of home. And I think part of what interests me about it is that often people choose kind of treacherous situations over the comforts of home. And the story starts out like that. But the end of the story produces a really interesting twist to that format, I think, Mm -hmm. because it seems as if Mary, after going to the party and then looking at the landscape once again and seeing her house in the distance, perhaps, although it's ambiguous, perhaps has decided to forestall that process of leaving home. Because what that process means is that the future is going to include necessarily the brutality of men. Mm-hmm. And not the sort of sweet motorcycle ride. I mean, she, she brings this <laughs> bottle of cream to the party, and then by the end of the party, O'Toole opens the cream and pours it into the carcass of the goose, and then, you know, them sort of spoiling everything, and O'Toole opening those taps, and there's a lake of beer everywhere, and then the dogs are drinking it, yeah. and then them saying that it's possibly Mary's fault for having led this person on There's no way that she can have gone to that party and had a good time or have come away with it without having done something wrong simply for existing. Yeah. Also, when you brought up this story, you said that your first reading of it, you were drawn to it because of the kind of Cinderella quality of this girl going to the ball and, and then having her dreams dashed because Prince Charming does not show up to this ball. (laughs) But what's interesting to me is that even the Prince Charming in the story, well, he was just a married guy who was playing around with a 15-year-old girl, no intention of ever coming back. He told her he couldn't love her because he had a wife. That is exactly right. I almost think it becomes a sort of joke between the author and the reader, and not exactly at Mary's expense, but we can see what she can't. First of all, He's not honorable. He is married, has, as you say, no intention of coming back. But the other component of that dynamic is that he's got her washing his shirts and acting nursemaid and attending to his sunburn. And um, she's already gleefully engaged in the drudgery of what a wife would be doing for this man, but sees it as part of, you know, this avenue for escape that she might have. But I think that that is a kind of tender joke there. Yeah. Um, why do you think he sends the drawing? You know, I don't, I don't know why he sends her the drawing, except that it probably pleases him to think of her pining a little bit. And maybe he's proud of his artistic accomplishments. But um, one interesting thing about the drawing is that when... Edna O'Brien revised the story and changed the title of it to put into her collection. She changed the drawing from looking like Mary but prettier to looking like Mary but uglier. It's an interesting change. I don't know exactly what it means except that the dream 
of the seduction withers that much sooner. Upon the moment of the drawing's arrival, Mary maybe can see better that this person didn't actually see her for who she was or didn't see her for whatever she values about her own beauty. Yeah. Interestingly, O'Toole does see her beauty. O'Toole, the most crass of all people who can't be bothered to remember her name. You know, other people might think her hair was skeelish. I think that's the word. Streelish. Streelish, streelish, which I think means sort of slovenly and messy. But he he sees the beauty in it. He likes these simple girls. (laughs) Right, and they're both tall and thin. Yeah. And I, I think he doesn't know better than to try to pursue her by persistence. He won't have been the first man in the history of the world to adopt this tactic. Yeah. I mean, he's he's sort of put out that no one wants to have a cuddle with him. You know, he feels it's owed to him. On the other hand, until he gets really drunk and opens all the taps, he doesn't seem malicious to me. Mm-mm. He just seems confused as to why there's no response to his advances. Well, I I don't think that having desire for somebody and using persistence to try to pursue them is necessarily malicious. It might just be a misunderstanding of what they want versus what Mm -hmm. you want. Of course, the effects of it can be very harmful to people, but that doesn't mean that his intention is to hurt Mary. Yeah. Um, Something about the rights between the men and the women in the story really interests me in the in the sense that I think the other girls, Doris, Ethna, and Crystal, are more tolerant of this male behavior. Like, they're more habituated to it than Mary is. She's not habituated to it. And they maybe will become even more habituated to it. This is sort of the world that they swim in. Mrs. Rogers herself seems to have sort of acquired a taste for the male behavior in the story, and in fact, is lovers with Mr. Brogan. And so there is a kind of instance of actual tenderness between men and women, which I find interesting about the story. Also that Mrs. Rogers, her position and that hotel and the way it's described does have a vague aura of the brothel and the madam about it. Of course, of course. And there's a reason she's inviting girls. And it's not just so they can move the furniture. Decoration yeah, and amusement yeah. on the part of the men. Yeah. Yeah. Though she does make some effort to sort of protect them at the end, even though she won't sleep in the same room as them. <laughs> right. And I, actually, that reminds me about, you know, um, an interesting reversal to the Cinderella structure is that the kind of less beautiful, less alluringly simple-minded, mountainy village girls, unlike the stepsisters in Cinderella, do become more the equals of or sympathetic to Mary near the end of the story. And at least Ethna does because they Mm -hmm. protect her. Mm -hmm. And and that's like an interesting turn, I think, that they're all in a predicament that's shared. And Ethna is actually sympathetic to her earlier in the story, too, when she... She likes the dress. Yeah, <laughs> she, she doesn't want to admit it to Doris. Right. She, I mean, that's like such a classically tortured dynamic where she can't be nice in front of her friend because the agreed upon collective version of things is that this girl is beneath them and someone that they have a bit of contempt for. Yeah. As you were saying before, at some point, the story close to the end, 
becomes not so much Mary's story as everyone's story and the story of everyone's foiled yearnings. And we do go into at least Long John Salmon's mind as he's kind of thinking, why did I go to a party? I could be swimming and doing my ablutions. And we hear about how Crystal's never going to get married because she would mean not wearing her curlers and she loves them more. And why do you think Edna O'Brien chose to sort of shift into the other characters a little more at the end? I'm not sure what her motivation is, but in terms of its effects as a story, I really feel like it's the great writer who would shift into everyone else's longings and motivations in that scene rather than stick with the sort of injustice of what Mary expects as opposed to what Mary finds. And for O'Brien to go into the men's longings as well shows that she's totally capable of being quite fair, really, in remembering that they all have their own subjective ideas about what life should be. Mm -hmm. And Long John Salmon is a loner compared to the others. It's kind of a funny dramatic moment when he utters ablutions. (laughs) He wants some version of an innocence that will shed the layer or stain of this party. And in a way, the, the whole story is kind of about innocence coming back to Mary, you know, and whether or not she wants to lose her innocence. And in a way, even as the other girls, the sort of stepsisters in the structure, Doris and Ethna, resent her, she's quite proud secretly and sees the ways in which socially she's actually somewhat above them because there's a coarseness there to village life. Yeah, I mean, the the townspeople may be more sophisticated in some ways, but they're less respectable. And so you get sort of country folk versus city folk and respectability versus immorality or, you know, wantonness. Her mother sprinkles her with holy water before she leaves for the party. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, Oh, and the moment when Mary finds out she's drunk alcohol unwittingly, and she says, you know, it's going to curse the rest of her life. Her confirmation is ruined. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't matter that um, somebody else has slipped it to her. Intention does not um, protect you from defilement. No, no. And as you were saying, when when she leaves home and looks back at the house, it's just kind of this little place with scraggy trees, and it's it's described as in an unattractive way. When she goes home again at the end of the story and sort of stops to look at the house, it's got more of a, a glow about it. And maybe maybe that moment is her moment of thinking, it's too soon to leave, and this is where I am. Yeah, it's almost like a kind of, not a resolve, but the experience itself has recast what it means to milk the cows, what it means to be on that farm. And so it seems to me, I read the end of the story as a kind of delay of an inevitability because I think that her future is going to involve men pouring bottles of cream into the carcasses of geese. But for now, she's looking at home and thankful to be going back there. Yeah. And she's also learned that even if she goes to the party, she has to share a bed with, you know, other people with headaches 
from alcohol rather than the twins who have earaches, you know? Yeah. It's I mean, just more of the same. Right. And the way that she describes the commercial hotels, the, the dried out hydrangeas in the chamber pot and um, the keys of the piano being yellow, yellow rather than yeah. white is somehow quite telling. That's part of what makes it seem more like a flop house than a proper hotel. Right, right. You know, coming back to the idea of this as a kind of Cinderella story or a fairy tale, there isn't a happy ending. There isn't a fairy tale ending. But there is, in a way, a sort of moral ending. We come back and we realize, actually, you know, in some ways, home is the place that you want to be. And home is where you get the support you need. And even Mary says, you know, if that's what a party is, <laughs> who needs it? It's not that the longing for the unknown, as you were saying, is is wrong. It's that be careful what you wish for, I suppose. Yeah, and maybe also um, the party has allowed her to re-encounter and perhaps fine-tune what her own values are, and moreover, to listen to them and take them seriously and not be someone who must subject herself to other people's values presuming that life is better in the village, that life is better at the hotel, or that life would be better with this guy who is mostly a projection. Yeah, I, th I think that the end is not a fairy tale ending. It's slightly wistful, but it's also kind of lovely mm -hmm. that she gets to go back home. And um, it's as if Innocence is not lost, and there's something about that frost on the ground that's highly symbolic of that, that the dung is covered with frost. So it's gone from dung-like to pure and sparkling and white, and maybe that's, you know, a bit glaringly symbolic for me to point out. But it's useful, and I think it's accurate in the sense that grace comes and goes, and the ability to see it is part of what grace is. And at the end of the story, suddenly she can see it for a moment. It's true. There's a purity to it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Deborah. Edna O'Brien, a winner of the Penn Nabokov Award and the Irish Penn Award, among others, is the author of more than two dozen books of fiction, including the novels The Country Girls and In the Forest, and the story collections The Love Object and Saints and Sinners which won a Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award in 2011. Her most recent novel, Girl, was published in 2019. Rachel Kushner has published three novels, Telex from Cuba, The Flamethrowers, and The Mars Room, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2018. Her most recent book, The Hard Crowd, Essays 2000-2020, came out last year. You can download 180 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.